guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Awesome-er. <laughs> <laughs> you sound good. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. Someone very aggressively said there's only three weeks left until Christmas today. That was me. And oh. Was it you? <laughs> it could have been me. No, it wasn't. Like it was on Twitter. So if you said it on Twitter, I think oh, I no. knew who the no, culprit no, I was. Did not. Yeah. And I was like, hold on. That's like barely even shipping days left. I have like no time. I, I mean, know. you know. Santa gets all the gifts, but in case Santa needed a shipping helper, I am really behind the eight ball at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am too. I am too. Yeah, I am too. And we're definitely in that time of year where it's like every day I just have random things that just show up here in the mail. And, you know, my husband is like, what, what is all this stuff? I'm like, it is Christmas time. Don't You can't say anything about all this stuff. You just have to no. let it happen and don't question any of it. Please but, uh, don't question it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then somehow I always feel like I'm like, oh, I still have so many more things I for some reason have in my mind that I haven't gotten yet or that I need to hurry up and get. But yeah, I do feel like we're kind of getting down to crunch time with ordering things and having them shipped to you. And yeah. It's getting it's getting a little scary. It's getting real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. And it sneaks up on me every year. Again, on the calendar. It's not one of those floating holidays, but for some reason, Christmas is always just like, oh my gosh, it's here. And then in December, I'm always telling my husband, like, next year, what we're gonna do is we're gonna take yeah. a little money out of our checks every, you know, two weeks and we're gonna save until the end of the year. And yeah. then these are my plans in December. In January, I'm like, YOLO, we're okay. Christmas is twelve months away. <laughs> Let's just live our lives. It's a terrible plan. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I feel like I do the same thing here, kind of, where I'm just like, I try to make a better plan, but then I'm always mm -hmm. scrambling at the end of the year. And there's just Mm -mm. that's that's part of the season though that's part of it it comes along with the territory yeah I like to say it's part of my charm but since I don't have charm I really don't have, I have nothing so it, it's 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 not a good thing it's not a good look for me but I'll do it again next year don't you worry right <laughs> exactly all right so we'll get right into the episode this week we don't really talk about a lot of serial killers I feel like on the show but I do enjoy learning about serial killers, and I think they are pretty fascinating. Um, and so today's episode actually is about a serial killer. So one of the reasons that I think serial killers are fascinating, I use that word fascinating, which I guess that's the appropriate word, but it kind of blows my mind to think about like one person being able to get away with multiple murders because in the vast majority of murder cases, the police are able to narrow down their suspects and they're pretty quickly able to bring the killer to justice. But in the case of serial killers, they somehow manage to evade the police for years sometimes while they continue to kill again and again. Sometimes the police realize they're dealing with a serial killer when they start noticing similarities in crime scenes or in the details of a murder that kind of give these clues that suggest that these crimes were committed by the same person. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about a killer who escaped being caught after his first murder, but then went on to kill several times again years later. The story begins in 1993 in Glenview, Illinois, when an 18-year-old woman was found dead outside of her home on the morning of August 14, 1993. Trisha Picasso was a bright-eyed, energetic, and positive young woman just starting her life after graduating from Glenbrook South High School in 1993. She was born on January 18, 1975 in Evanston, Illinois to Rick and Diane and was the oldest of three children. 
Trisha had two younger brothers, Doug and Tom, and the family lived a really enjoyable life in an active neighborhood in Glenview. Throughout Trisha's whole life, her family lived on a cul-de-sac and had a great relationship with their neighbors. And I don't know if you have ever lived on a cul-de-sac, but that is some of my most valued childhood memories are from living on a cul-de-sac and having that kind of neighborhood. Maybe I just lived on a good cul-de-sac and there was a lot of kids, like every house there was a kid like my age that lived at and we all went to school together and we all kind of just hung out literally in the cul-de-sac, which is like the weirdest thing because you're just hanging out in the street, but it's okay because it's relatively it's safe. Yeah, it's a cul-de-sac. So <laughs> I, I, I love that. So I kind of got a picture for this family's life, you know, living in this neighborhood. Yeah. Trisha in particular stood out among the crowd. She was described as being a beautiful person inside and out, full of energy and full of life. She was always in a good mood and always happy to spread her cheerfulness around to others. She was very popular as well as extremely smart, always making straight A's and earning herself a nickname of Math Whiz. Even at 18, Trisha knew what she wanted out of life and she was ready to accomplish her goals and dreams. One of the neighbors said that Trisha was delightful, beautiful, and vivacious. That summer was really an exciting one for Trisha. As we said, she had just graduated from high school, and this was her last summer at home before she went off to college. She'd been accepted into Purdue University, and by the end of August, she would be packing her things and headed off to pursue a degree in engineering. On the night of August 13th, Trisha went out to a scavenger hunt party and then to dinner with some friends of hers. At the end of the night, she dropped off her friends and headed home at around 1 o'clock in the morning. When she arrived at home, she parked her car in the driveway and walked towards the side entrance of the home that she had grown up in and where her family was sleeping inside. But tragically, Trisha never made it inside. Later that morning, a new day had just begun, and Trisha's family was just waking up to get their day started. Trisha's dad, Rick, walked outside through the side door of their home, which was really the main entrance that the family used, as opposed to their front door. When Rick stepped outside, he noticed a pair of white tennis shoes sticking up near the side door, and moments later, he made the heartbreaking discovery that his beautiful daughter had been killed. Rick screamed for his son to call 911, while Rick desperately looked for any signs of life. Trisha's mom, Diane, was at work when she learned what happened to her daughter, and so she rushed home to find police and emergency personnel surrounding their home and blocking her from trying to see Trisha's body. There were little clues left behind that could explain exactly what happened to Trisha. She had been stabbed 12 times, with at least three of them being fatal stab wounds. It appeared that whoever had attacked this young woman had done so when she was attempting to go inside of her house when she got home that night. Detectives believe that the attacker came upon Trisha from behind, grabbed her left arm, and held it behind her while they stabbed her. But there was no evidence that suggested why anyone would have done this to Trisha. She hadn't been sexually assaulted or robbed, so investigators had very little to go on. There was no evidence that Trisha had any enemies or that there was anyone who would have really such an issue with her that they would want to murder her in such a brutal way. But the nature of the murder led them to believe that it had to be a personal and not just a random attack. Through talking to the neighbors, police learned that there had been a pool party on the cul-de-sac the night before. But when they spoke to partygoers, they were told that no one really saw anything unusual and there was also a really thick fog in the air that night. Through the investigation, police learned about a young man named Michael Gargiulo. He was 17 years old and was a friend of Trisha's brother, Doug. 
Michael lived just five houses down from the family, and he spent quite a bit of time hanging around them. According to a friend of Michael's, he appeared to be totally shocked by Trisha's murder, but others close to Trisha said that Michael had exhibited some strange behavior the year prior. Michael was born on February 15, 1976, and those who knew him best described him as pretty much the total opposite of what Trisha's friends and family had said about her. One childhood friend of Michael's said that he was a, quote, awkward and insecure teen, but that he had this other side of him that was like a, quote unquote, crazy switch. If Michael really wanted something, he was going to get it one way or another. And when this crazy switch flipped, it was like all logic and emotion just went out the window. Michael may have been socially awkward, but he also had a quick and explosive temper. He was typically quiet and reserved, but he had some strange mannerisms. For example, when he would go over to Trisha's family's house, he would pick up his plate and would pace around like what they described as being a caged animal. As an outlet to his pent-up energy, Michael practiced martial arts and did a very short stint as an amateur boxer. But other than hearsay about Michael's personality, nothing in his background suggested that he was violent. He had previously been arrested for theft, but otherwise he had nothing on his record that would be a red flag for murder. But in the wake of Trisha's death, Michael continued to insert himself into the situation and he started to make some people uncomfortable. He actually bought gifts for Trisha's parents. He bought flowers for her mom, Diane, and a shirt for her dad, Rick, and he gave both of them a gift card to a restaurant, which seems kind of like a nice gesture, I guess, but I guess it depends on how close you are with this person and, you know, what your relationship is with them. But that doesn't really seem that unusual to me that he would give gifts, you know, or to give some kind of a condolence gift, especially if he did know the family Yeah, and he wasn't, you know, he was around them a lot. But the shirt is kind of a weird one, isn't it? Like flowers make sense. Even a restaurant gift card I can understand, but a shirt is kind, to me, that seems kind of, that's like what you get somebody for Christmas. Right. That's yeah. Like, yeah. That's neighbor, true. But a shirt's a little bit weird to me. But who knows? They could have had that kind of relationship. Yeah, that's true. But then in a bizarre conversation with Trisha's brother, Doug, Michael actually asked Doug if he would kill the person who had murdered his sister. And when Doug said yes, Michael actually then called the police and told them that Doug had threatened him, oh which gosh. doesn't really make any sense. Like, what are you doing? Why would you draw this kind of attention to yourself? Right. Why? Like, none of that makes any sense. So the police tried to find any evidence that they could that would suggest that Michael had anything to do with the murder, but they weren't able to tie him or anyone else to the crime. The only evidence collected from this scene was a keychain that was determined to be Trisha's and a footprint that turned out to be Rick's, which isn't surprising since he's the one who went outside and found her. The police had taken Trisha's fingernail clippings and stored them with evidence as well, but when they hit a dead end with the investigation, the case went cold. Years went by, and in 1997, a new team was put together to solve Trisha's murder. A few months into the new investigation, a possible new suspect emerged. It was a former student from the same high school that Trisha attended named Eric Agazim. The investigation team also believed that Michael was somehow involved, but they never really looked into his background very far. Detectives tried to talk to Eric about the crime, and when he refused to speak to them, he actually ended up becoming their prime suspect, and the interest in Michael was kind of put on the back burner. Later in 1997, Michael found himself in trouble yet again. He was arrested for felony vehicular burglary. 
Officers took the opportunity to offer him a deal, and they said that if he told them what he knew about Trisha's murder, they would have his felony charge dropped to a misdemeanor. But when Michael refused to talk about Trisha, the state prosecutor felt that it was kind of weird and that this team should do a little more digging on Michael just to fully rule him out as a suspect. In the meantime, Michael sort of laid low, and I really mean sort of. In the fall of 1998, he suddenly and randomly showed up at Trisha's family home and knocked on the door. At this point in time, it had been five years since Trisha was killed, and the family was, of course, trying to go on with their lives as best as they could. Diane answered the door and saw Michael standing there. He said that he needed to talk to Rick, but since Rick was at work, Diane invited Michael inside the house to wait for him. It was about an hour later when Rick finally got home, and just as he was about to sit down and talk to Michael and, you know, find out what he wanted, Michael's father and one of his siblings just kind of showed up out of nowhere and told Michael that he needed to leave. He needed to come with them and go home. The conversation was interrupted and never happened, but Rick really felt like Michael was about to admit that he had something to do with or knew something about what happened to Trisha all those years ago. Rick really wasn't sure what to make of this encounter, but he called the police to report it so they could maybe look into it. Unfortunately, right after this happened, Michael up and moved across the country to Los Angeles, which this is obviously a pretty big move for, you know, this kid from a small town in Illinois, and he doesn't really have any reason to, to move to L.A. Most people don't move to L.A. unless they have they're aspiring actors or they have some dream that they feel that L.A. is going to be the best place for them. Definitely not like the typical, this kid is not the typical one that you would be like, oh yeah, I can see him, you know, up and moving to L.A. in the middle of this murder investigation. We actually are going to get into so many more details, so many more details of this crazy story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I have to tell you guys about an amazing new service I found called FrameBridge. FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. FrameBridge can do just about anything from art prints to diplomas and even those photos on your phone you've been meaning to print out for months. FrameBridge is also the perfect way to give easy and thoughtful gifts. In just minutes, you can turn a photo from your phone into one of your best gifts ever. Here's how it works. Just go to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. Preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. Choose your favorite or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The experts at FrameBridge will custom frame your items and deliver your finished piece straight to you or anyone on your list. A handcrafted, personalized gift from FrameBridge starts at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, our listeners will get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge.com when they use our code MOMS. We're just a few weeks away from the holidays, so I decided to use FrameBridge for a gift for my in-laws. I grabbed a photo on my phone that my mother-in-law just loves of my kids, and then I went on FrameBridge's easy-to-use website, uploaded the photo, and one of their amazing designers gave me recommendations on frames. So I took my favorite photo of my kids and had it framed by FrameBridge in the gray ash gallery frame, and I'm so excited that it's already on the way to our house, so I'll be able to give it to her for Christmas. Get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code MOMS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com, promo code MOMS. Framebridge.com, promo code MOMS. 
This season, give the gift that keeps on giving by giving the gift of Rothy's. Rothy's is the most amazing company that makes both stylish and sustainable shoes and bags. I have deemed myself a Rothy's ambassador, and at the first hint of someone in my life mentioning the need for new shoes, I am on it. Because Rothy's are not only super cute, but they also have a ton of great styles and patterns and are even seamlessly knit with thread that's made from plastic water bottles. To date, Rothy's has transformed nearly 70 million bottles into beautiful shoes, handbags, and face masks. But beyond that, Rothy's are so comfortable that you can actually wear them right out of the box because there is zero break-in period. Rothy's have become part of my everyday uniform. I wear my steel gray sneakers everywhere. Whether I'm running errands or walking the dog around the neighborhood, I do it all in my Rothy's. And whenever they need a quick refresh because of all the miles I put on them, I just throw them in the wash and they come out looking just as great as new because Rothy's products are completely machine washable. And just in time for the holidays, Rothy's offers gift cards so you can let your loved ones pick the perfect Rothy's present just for them. Check out all of the amazing shoes, bags, and masks available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, Michael had returned to Trisha's family's home and looks like he was going to talk to you know her dad about maybe what had happened before and he gets up and leaves and all of a sudden skips town and moves to LA but just because Michael skipped town didn't mean that the investigation into Trisha's death had ended just a few months later Michael was called back to Illinois to testify before a grand jury in the initial interview before he actually gave his testimony He told police that he was also suspicious of Eric, who was apparently not just some random high school kid, but was also a friend of Michael's and Doug's. Michael told police that after Trisha was murdered, Eric actually came to his house and asked if Michael would help him hide a gym bag. Michael told police he had no clue what was in the bag and he never asked, but it was, quote, strongly implied it contained the murder weapon, end quote. However, when Michael gets up on the stand to testify to this, he instead tells the grand jury that he had lied to the police and that none of that was true. Still, police looked into Eric and they didn't find anything at all. He eventually moved away from town and was never charged in the crime. After testifying for the grand jury, Michael returned to California and tried to have a life there. At one point in 1999, he took part in a graduate thesis film for a USC student named Temple Brown. Michael was brought on board to play the part of a boxer in the film, and he was really perfect for the role. He did a good job acting, but according to Temple Brown, Michael sort of rubbed him the wrong way. He felt like there was just something really odd about him and said he seemed withdrawn and very quiet. In 2000, now more than seven years after Trisha was killed, new detectives took over her case back in Illinois. By this time, of course, technology has advanced a bit, and these new detectives hope that the fingernail clippings taken from Trisha would be useful now that DNA testing was becoming more of a big thing. Isn't it kind of hard to even imagine when DNA wasn't a big thing? You know, it is, <laughs> and it wasn't that long ago. That's right, the craziest right. part. It's amazing now, like we're seeing all these crimes that are solved because of DNA, and it's like, man. Just, uh, I always think about the wherewithal for people to have held on to some of this evidence. Like, some of it's like from the 60s and 70s, and like they kept hair uh, from that right. time they couldn't identify, and now it's like, oh, 
by the way, we have a hit on something. But so it's just amazing to me that even that back then it was like, well, you know, let's sit patiently and maybe something will come in a few years. So I, I love DNA. It's amazing. So they sent these clippings off to the Illinois State Police Crime Lab, and they actually got at least a little piece of the puzzle. The test results show that there were two people's DNA on Trisha's nail clippings. One DNA profile was, of course, Trisha's, and the second belonged to someone else who was not in the system. Officers began collecting DNA samples from over 20 people that included Eric, but the DNA didn't match anyone they tested. The only DNA they had left to check for a match was Michael, but now with him living in another state, police would have to wait for the right opportunity to make it happen. Back in Los Angeles, Michael was trying to blend in and meet new people, but his methods were what some said were pretty weird. He liked to introduce himself to random people, mostly women, in kind of this out-of-the-blue fashion. And so this is how he really came to be acquainted with another young woman who would later be found stabbed to death. At the end of 2000, Michael approached 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin while she was outside with her friend Christopher fixing a flat tire. Michael just walked right up and introduced himself as Mike and said that he was in the heating and cooling business. Ashley was allegedly having problems with her heater, so she actually invited Michael in to check it out. The whole time that he was there, Michael was telling Ashley and her friend Christopher these crazy stories about how he was a professional boxer. From that day on, Michael became fixated on Ashley, and he tried to position himself around her as much as he could. Although Ashley and her friends thought it was a little strange, nobody actually thought that Michael was, you know, really a dangerous person. He didn't appear to really even be interested in Ashley sexually or even romantically, but it was more like he just wanted to be friends with her and, you know, kind of live the same lifestyle that she did. Either way, his behavior was definitely inappropriate. This is my opinion. Um, He would often show up at Ashley's house at strange times. And in one instance, a friend of Ashley's actually saw Michael sitting in his car. You know, the car was running, but he was just sitting inside staring at Ashley's house. And this is in like the middle of the night. Yeah. So the next morning, Michael actually went back by Ashley's house. And this time her friend Justin was around and he confronted Michael about his actions, you know, about showing up at weird times, about sitting out in front of her house in the middle of the night, all of that. And Michael just said that the reason he was hanging out outside of Ashley's house the night before was because the FBI was at his house trying to get a DNA sample from him regarding what he said was his best friend's girlfriend's murder. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, exactly. And that's like such a, a a brazen thing to even say. Like if you're actually trying to hide something, like why would you even mention that the FBI are trying yeah. to get your DNA at all? Like that does not make any sense why you would tell this person. That. I don't want to scare you, but the FBI is looking for me. So I thought right. I would sit here and scare you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not. He's not really hide, you know, covering his tracks very well. Right. Here. So Justin, you know, of course says, you know, why are you hiding from the FBI if you don't have anything to worry about? And then Michael pulled up his pant leg and revealed a knife that he had concealed there. It was tied around his ankle. Justin told Michael immediately to leave. And, you know, he talked this over with Ashley and with her other friends. And they decided together that Michael's whole story about the FBI and this alleged murder was what they considered an unlikely fantasy. But all of that changed on February 22nd, 2001, when Ashley was found dead in her home. 
Ashley was born on July 16, 1978 in Los Altos, California, where she was raised with one brother. Friends of Ashley described her as amazing, beautiful, fun, and spontaneous. After high school, she moved to LA and rented an apartment in Hollywood Hills with her friend Jennifer. From there, Ashley immersed herself fully in the Hollywood lifestyle and even found her way into some celebrity circles. In February of 2001, Ashley was absolutely thrilled because she'd been invited to go on a first date to a Grammy Awards party. And not with just any Joe Schmo, she was going on this date with Ashton freaking Kutcher. My middle name for him. (laughs) (laughs) Not his legal name. So the day of the party was February 21st, and Ashley spoke with Ashton at 7.30 that evening and confirmed their plans to attend this party together that night. They originally planned to head to the party around 8 o'clock, but Ashton was actually at a different party, and he ended up running late to pick Ashley up. He called her again at 8.24 p.m. and told her he'd be there soon. Ashley was still getting ready at this point and told him that she was blow-drying her hair, but she'd be ready and waiting for him. It was after 10 p.m. when Ashton finally showed up to take Ashley to this Grammy party, but when he got there, she didn't answer the door. Ashton noticed that Ashley's car was in the driveway and that the lights in her apartment were on, but there was no sign of Ashley anywhere. He looked through the windows of her apartment and noticed what he thought was wine spilled on the floor and noticed that the apartment was in disarray, but he also knew that at this time Ashley had been remodeling the place, so he really didn't think twice about the mess. After waiting for several minutes and getting no response, Ashton figured that Ashley was just upset that he was so late for their date and decided that she didn't want to see him, so then he left. He tried calling her several more times that night and never heard back from her. The next morning, terrible news broke and spread around the Hollywood Hills in L.A. Ashley Ellerin had been found dead inside her apartment. That morning at around 8.30, Ashley's roommate Jennifer came home after having stayed the night at her boyfriend's house, and that's when she found Ashley's body laying across the stairs covered in blood. She was found wearing a robe, shorts, and a camisole tank top, and her body was posed after she died. Her head was turned in a position that showed a wound on her neck. Jennifer was absolutely shocked and immediately felt scared that the killer might still be around, so she ran outside to her car to call 911. Detective Tom Small arrived first on the scene and saw what he later described as one of the worst crime scenes he'd ever been to. There didn't appear to have been much of a struggle, but Ashley was murdered in a very violent attack. Detective Small felt that there was a lot of anger and rage behind this murder. Ashley had been stabbed 47 times with 12 of the wounds being fatal, and she was found to have 13 defense injuries. But other than these devastating findings, there wasn't really any evidence that would, you know, help the police find a suspect. There was no sexual assault or robbery and no physical evidence left behind. So the method of solving this murder really was just to start ruling people out and hoping that in doing so, they found a clue that led them in the right direction. Through speaking to those closest to Ashley, the investigators were able to get a timeline established. Ashley's roommate, Jennifer, told police that she had been with her boyfriend that night, but she actually did try to go back to her apartment at around 10 o'clock. She said that she left her keys in her boyfriend's car and she wanted to just see if Ashley was home and would let her inside. When she got no answer at the door, she decided to just go back to her boyfriend's house and stay the night and then go home in the next morning. 
When Ashton Kutcher heard the news that Ashley had been killed, he went to the police himself to give any information that he had. It was quickly determined that he was not a suspect in the murder. Officers also spoke with Ashley's landlord, Mark, who told them that he had a sexual relationship with Ashley and that he actually had seen her that very night between 7 and 8 p.m. He said that he left her apartment at around 8.15 and after he left, Ashley was going to be taking a shower and getting ready to go to this Grammy party. Mark told the police that around 10 p.m., he looked out his window and saw somebody walking back and forth in front of Ashley's apartment, but at the time, he didn't think that this person was, you know, it didn't look sketchy or alarming in any way. When investigators started asking Ashley's friends more about, you know, who she was friends with and who she associated with, they learned about this friend, Mike, and based on the information that was gathered, Detective Small determined that Mike was actually Michael Gargiulo. So he took Michael's driver's license photo and he went back to re-interview people and show them the photo and ask, you know, have you, do you know anything about this particular person? Detective Small found out that Michael was quite a character who told really wild stories. He told some people that he was a heating and AC guy and had once been electrocuted on the job. And he told others that he was training for the Olympics in boxing. But the most shocking and bizarre thing that Michael told some people was that the Chicago police were framing him for a murder and they were trying to get his DNA. Because of all these weird things, Michael went right to the top of Detective Small's suspect list. Meanwhile, Michael quietly left town and moved to El Monte, just like he'd left town during the investigation into Trisha's murder. But officers from both states were now quietly looking into him. In 2002, detectives from Cook County, Illinois, contacted Detective Small, hoping to get help finding Michael so that they could come collect his DNA in connection with Trisha's murder that was now nine years unsolved. They didn't know at the time they called that Detective Small was already looking into Michael in connection with Ashley's murder, and when they found out they were investigating the same man, they teamed up and started working on the two cases together. Michael was hard to find because he never put anything in his own name but they did eventually figure out where he was. He was living in an apartment with his current girlfriend, and they moved in to apprehend him. Inside Michael's van, officers found three knives, binoculars, and a backpack with a Halloween mask and a gun inside, which is just creepy as all get out. He was taken to a medical center to give DNA samples, and then he was sent home while the samples were sent off for testing. We're not actually sure exactly why it took such a long time to get these results because, you know, it's possible that DNA results weren't coming in as quickly in the early 2000s. But in the meantime, Michael was out on the prowl once again, and he began dating a woman he met while fixing her air conditioner. In February of 2003, those two ended up moving in together, and Michael became violently abusive and hit her so hard that she ended up with a detached retina. She kicked him out and filed a restraining order, but he continued to stalk her and threatening her, telling her that he had a degree in forensics and he knew how to get away with killing her. It would still be six more months before the DNA samples would come back. But in September of 2003, officers finally got some information they'd been waiting years for. It was found that the unknown DNA that was found on Trisha's fingernail clippings actually belonged to Michael. It should have been an exciting win for the detectives in Illinois, but the state attorney really kind of rained on their parade when he said that the DNA evidence wasn't enough to bring charges against Michael. 
He said that since there was only one swab that was used to test the fingernails, it was impossible to determine if Michael's DNA was underneath her fingernail or just on top of it. And since Michael was friends with Trisha's brother, his DNA could have been on Trisha's fingernail from quote unquote casual contact. Oh my gosh. Yes. Really? I can understand that being like sure. maybe an iffy thing if it wasn't for the fact that they literally had no other suspects and that this was the only DNA they had even been missing. And like, of course, it turns out to be his, you know, and like they, they got a match on it. But then they're still like, mm, no, it could have just been there from casual contact. Like there was nobody else. There was no other DNA. There was no other clues. He was the only other suspect. It just boggles my mind that they didn't think that was enough. Right. And it feels like you can get stuff on people have been arrested and charged with so much less on hearsay on somebody pointing them out of a lineup you know where it's nothing and it's like you actually have dna that he was somewhere near her doesn't mean he did anything but he was somewhere near her body her hands and that's nothing that's just i don't know that's that's a tough one just because you know this guy is really scary he's he's terrifying yeah absolutely so no charges were brought on Michael, but his DNA was entered into a national database anyway. When Detective Small from California learned that Michael wouldn't be prosecuted in Illinois despite this DNA evidence, he was shocked. And of course, so was Trisha's family. The decision not to bring charges would sadly turn out to be a terrible idea. The months ticked by and there were no developments in the case against Michael, but in the early morning hours of December 1st, 2005, he struck again in what appeared to be a mostly random attack. 32-year-old Maria Bruno was an aspiring model who had come to the U.S. from El Salvador and obtained citizenship when she was just 10 or 11 years old. She was legally married but was separated from her husband, who she had four children with, all of which lived with the dad. They had two-year-old twins, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old. Maria had recently moved into a new apartment, which she had picked specifically because the building was what she thought was very secure, and it required a passcode or a key to get into the main part of the building. On the night of November 30th, Maria and her husband met up and went out drinking, hoping to patch things up between the two of them in their relationship. At the end of the night, they returned to Maria's new apartment where they had an intimate encounter before her husband left at around 2.30 in the morning. After he was gone, Michael entered Maria's apartment by removing the window screen from the kitchen window, which was on the ground floor, and climbing inside. He took a knife from Maria's kitchen and made his way to her bedroom where she was asleep. He stabbed her 17 times in total as she slept. She was found to only have one defensive wound. Investigators later determined that Maria's blood alcohol level may have prevented her from being able to fight back more. Michael also removed Maria's breast implants and placed them next to her body, which he had posed in a way to reveal a wound on her neck. Detectives said the scene was unlike anything they'd seen before, and the level of violence was, quote, phenomenal. But just like the other murders, there was no sexual assault, no burglary, and no robbery. Maria's friends told the police about a weird guy who had been watching Maria and said that he had dark hair and wore a hoodie and a hat. At one point, this person had even followed Maria into her apartment, and when she caught him, he just said, okay, I'm leaving, and he left. Oh my gosh. Yes, this is just terrifying. 
So there was little evidence left at this crime scene as well, but the police did find a shoe cover outside with one drop of Maria's blood on it. While this case was being investigated, Michael packed up and moved yet again to Santa Monica, where he laid low for about a year and a half. In the spring of 2008, Michael honed in on his next victim, 27-year-old Michelle Murphy. Just as he had randomly appeared in the lives of these other women, he did the same thing in the case of Michelle. At some point in time, Michael started being seen regularly outside of Michelle's apartment building, and he would even talk to her on many occasions. Then, on April 28, 2008, Michael made his move. He cut the screen off the living room window, which was actually on the second floor, so he had to really scale the building to get up there, and the window was slightly open, and once Michael had removed the screen, he was able to quietly and quickly gain entry into the apartment. It was nearly midnight, and Michelle was asleep in her bed at the time Michael went inside. Once he was in the building, Michael opened up the front door to give himself an easier escape route, and then he went into Michelle's bedroom and began stabbing her. Unlike his other victims, Michelle woke up and fought back hard. She grabbed the knife from Michael as he was stabbing her in the chest, arm, and shoulder, and in the struggle, Michael got his wrist cut, which made him stop the attack long enough for Michelle to kick him off of her. She had been stabbed eight times at this point, but Michael was scared, and so he takes off running out of the apartment after telling Michelle he was sorry. So Michelle managed to crawl on her hands and knees to lock her window and door while she called for help. She told police that her attacker wore a hoodie and a hat and that she thought it could be the strange man who had greeted her several times outside of her apartment recently. Officers looked for evidence and found a trail of blood that Michael left behind, but it ended in an alleyway. Technicians collected DNA samples from the blood trail and sent them off for testing. About 25 days later, the results were in. The DNA found in the blood outside of Michelle's apartment belonged to Michael. At the time, he was living in an apartment across the alley from Michelle's with his wife and possibly a child. Some sources mention that he has a child and others, you know, don't make any mention of it. So from his apartment, he was able to see into Michelle's apartment. Oh my gosh. This story is so bananas on so many levels. And it's amazing to me that she was able to wake up during this, Michelle, and fight him off and lock the door, lock the window, make this call, and even be able to say, hey, I think it's this guy that's been following me around. Because you have to think in that kind of a moment when this has happened to you, you there's no way you know if you're going to live or die. You've got to just be like getting all this information out for her to be able to get everything out is really amazing, especially considering how this case is gone. It, yeah. You know, she needs to be able to get everything out yeah every piece of evidence against this guy apparently yeah and it really is scary and like honestly it's like my worst fear thinking of somebody actually climbing to like a second or third floor to get access inside like that is so terrifying and I always make jokes you know whenever we stay like even if we stay at the beach or something in a condo and if anyone locks you know the door the sliding glass door to the balcony I'm like why like who's gonna come up here we're on like the seventh floor but I'm like this story makes me think like you never know that's why they have locks on doors even if you're up on an elevated (laughs) surface because crazy things happen you know but it is like it's crazy and and another thing that is always a huge fear of mine is being attacked while I'm sleeping you know because obviously nobody wants to be caught off guard you already don't have the advantage if you are 
not, you know, you're not awake at the time. You don't know what's going on. So it really is truly amazing that this woman was able to fight him off and scare him away and that, you know, she survived this attack. Yeah, for sure. And there is still so much more to this story. And we are going to get into it after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you're still stuck on what to get for someone for the holidays this year, give the gift that everyone will love. Give the gift of StoryWorth. If you aren't familiar with StoryWorth, it's an online service that helps your loved ones share both stories and answers to thought-provoking questions about their lives. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one different story prompts, and they simply respond to the email with their answer. It's that easy. At the end of the year, you'll have an amazing keepsake that will be enjoyed for generations to come. My father-in-law is a great storyteller, so this year we are gifting him with StoryWorth. I can't wait to see what kinds of stories we get from the story prompts, and I love that we can even add some of our own questions and questions from the kids. At the end of the year, StoryWorth will compile all of his stories along with photos into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped to him for free. There are so many things I wish I had asked my grandparents as a child, and I'm excited my kids will have answers to those questions about their grandpa thanks to StoryWorth. I love that StoryWorth asks unique questions like, what's a small decision you made that ended up having a big impact on your life, and even allows you to make up some of your own questions, things that maybe your gift recipient hasn't thought about in a while, but they have a story for that you might not have ever heard otherwise. At the end of the year, you're also able to order additional copies for other family members to have. Give your loved ones the gift of spending time together wherever you live with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash moms. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash moms for $10 off. I am a creature of comfort, which means as often as I can, I'll be hanging out in my sweats and socks. But wouldn't it be great if you could have that same comfortable feeling of sweats, but in a bra? Now you can with Third Love. That's because Third Love designers created their bras to fit you, not the other way around. And 3rd Love has it all from bras that start at just $45 to their team of expert fit stylists who are completely dedicated to helping you find a bra that is the perfect fit and a style that you adore. Fit stylists are even available by chat or email, so you don't even have to make a dreaded phone call to get some assistance. And 3rd Love's bras are so cute from their modern stripes to having lace that actually feels soft, plus they have their number one rated 24-7 classic t-shirt bra. They have tons more exclusive styles at thirdlove.com, and each and every Third Love bra has their signature memory foam cups, no-slip straps, and a scratch-free band. I took their Fit Finder quiz on the Third Love website a couple of years ago and found that I had been wearing the wrong size bra for my entire adult life, which really wasn't surprising as I'd never found a bra that I even remotely liked. After taking the quiz, I was given a few options based on answers I gave, and now not only do I have the perfect fitting bra, I have three. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 10% off today. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how Michael had attacked a woman named Michelle Murphy in her apartment as she slept, and she actually woke up during this attack and was able to fight Michael off and scare him away, and he took off running out of her apartment, down an alleyway, dripping blood from his own wound the whole way. 
So the police collected a sample of this and they eventually were able to get a match. They realized that they were dealing with the same Michael that they had been kind of pursuing for a very, very long time already. Within 24 hours of confirming Michael's DNA, officers arrested him on June 6, 2008. When they arrested him, they searched his car and they found more shoe covers that were consistent with the one that was found at a previous crime scene. When the police were taking him down to the station, he asked, quote, which agency is this? Which is a weird thing to ask the police, but it also told them yeah. that Michael wasn't even sure what crime he was being arrested for. He was charged with attempted murder and burglary for the case of Michelle Murphy just two days later. Since Michael's DNA had been placed in the national database back in 2002 by Illinois police, the officers that arrested him in California contacted Illinois to find out more about why they put Michael's DNA into the database in the first place. They learned that it was because he was suspected in Trisha's murder. At this time, police in El Monte were still trying to figure out what happened to Maria Bruno and had no idea that they were looking for a man who had killed before and was suspected in two states. The officer, Sergeant Lillenfeld, that was investigating the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy, actually contacted El Monte police to let them know that he believed the murder of Maria Bruno was related to the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. Through talking to El Monte detectives, they learned that Michael lived in the same apartment complex as Maria and had apparently told many people that he was attracted to her. Sergeant Lillenfeld then got a warrant to search Michael's old apartment that was in El Monte to look for evidence. Inside the attic, they found a shoe cover that was an exact match to the one that was found outside of Maria's apartment on the day that she was killed. They also found a hoodie and a hat. This new evidence was presented to the L.A. district attorney, who felt that this was really enough to formally bring charges against Michael in the murders of Maria Bruno and Ashley Ellerin. In June of 2008, two officers went undercover at the El Monte jail where Michael was being housed, and the goal was to try and get a confession from him, or at least get anything that might implicate him in the murders. These two officers shared a cell with Michael for about 40 hours, in which Michael spilled his guts about the crimes and talked about a plan to escape by ambushing the guards. When Michael started trying to get these undercover officers to help him escape, they were removed from the cell and Michael was searched. They ended up finding two jail-made handcuff keys in the waistband of his jail uniform. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh is right. Like, he was only in a room with these officers, like, not even two days, and he already was like, yeah, I did all these things, and now I'm planning on ambushing these corrections officers and escaping this prison. Like, that is crazy. Right. It's like almost whenever you hear like uh, jailhouse confessions and you're like, okay, that's a lot of information that somebody gave you. And this guy does it within 40 hours. But it makes sense that they would have put them in with him because he's always telling these stories and always giving too much information. And seems like he just loves, maybe not loves to hear himself talk, but he wants to give like these half, half truths. He's almost bragging on himself about right. this stuff, which I'm sure there's a psychological reason for all of that. But it is amazing. They're like, you know what we're going to try? We're going to try these two officers. And thank goodness they did because they found, you know, this contraband, for lack of a better word, where he was trying to escape. And who knows what would have happened? This guy's clearly capable of anything and everything it's just terrible but i mean good call on their part on that one that one just that was a, sh a 
uh, like a fact in the story that just blew my mind. Me that too. They were able to find that out and that was going on. So Michael was indicted for the murders and burglaries of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno on September 4th, 2008. While awaiting trial, Michael was also indicted for the attempted escape from the El Monte jail. In total, he was being charged with two counts of murder with special circumstances, one count of attempted murder, three counts of burglary, and one count of attempted escape. This case would take years to make it before a jury, though, and in May of 2011, the TV show 48 Hours released an episode about Trisha's 1993 murder in Illinois. So after the show airs, a former co-worker of Michael's contacted police and told them that All those years ago, Michael had bragged about how he murdered a woman in Chicago in the 90s. But since Michael's known for telling all these off-the-wall stories, he didn't believe him. That is, until he saw this 48 Hours episode. So this man agrees to fly to Cook County and tell his story to the grand jury. On July 7, 2011, Michael was finally charged with Trisha's murder, and this is 18 years after she was killed. Once the story broke that Michael was a serial killer responsible for the murder and the attempted murder of multiple women, he was dubbed the Hollywood Ripper, the Boy Next Door Killer, and the Chiller Killer because, of course, we have to have some kind of nickname for all of these killers. Eight more years went by before Michael finally went to trial in May of 2019. In this trial, he was only answering to the murders of Ashley Ellerin, Maria Bruno, and the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy but he would still have to stand trial in Illinois in the case of Trisha. He entered a plea of not guilty by way of insanity. Prosecutors called Michael a, quote, serial psychosexual thrill killer, end quote, and they said that he collected this real-time intelligence on these victims and waited for the opportunity to carry out the murders. The prosecution pointed out that these murders and the attempted murder were all very similar and that in each case, Michael planned his attack and then carried it out in or near the victim's home before leaving their bodies there and fleeing with little trace of himself behind. All of the victims were described as being, quote, petite, attractive, and outgoing young women, and they all lived near Michael at the time of these attacks. The prosecution was allowed to talk about Trisha's case, even though he wasn't being tried for that one, because it really helped to establish similarities between these cases. I actually wouldn't have been surprised if they didn't allow that in this trial, wouldn't you? That seems like... Yeah, I could definitely see them going the other way with that and saying, you know, no, this is a different matter, different state. You you know, we're not considering that right now. But I can also understand why they would let it in in this case. Yeah, yeah. In each case, Michael had inserted himself into his victims' lives forcefully and then ambushed them. All of the victims were also stabbed in the chest. As for the defense, their main case was that there was no evidence that tied Michael to the crime scenes of Ashley Ellerin or Maria Bruno. They even went so far as to suggest that Maria had been killed by her husband and that Ashley was murdered by her landlord because he was jealous that she was going on a date with Ashton Kutcher. The defense also claimed that Michael suffered from split personalities and that when he went inside of Michelle Murphy's apartment, he didn't know it was her apartment. And that's why he apologized when he left when she woke up during the attack and fought back. The prosecution called almost 250 witnesses, including Ashton Kutcher and Michelle Murphy. One of the experts was a psychologist that testified that Michael had antisocial personality disorder, but a defense expert said that he had dissociative identity disorder. 
A friend of Michael's took the stand and testified that Michael watched America's Most Wanted to learn from the mistakes of other criminals and that Michael once told him that if he was ever accused of a crime, he would just try and lie his way out of it. Michael believed that he could get away with any crime if he were ever to commit one. The jury deliberated over this case for four days. On August 15, 2019, a verdict was reached. Michael was found guilty of the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno, as well as the attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. A week later, the jury ruled that Michael was legally sane and of sound mind at the time of these murders. Michael is currently still awaiting sentencing. The jury did recommend the death penalty in September of 2019, but the judge has delayed sentencing after it was found out that the prosecution kept information a secret that would have called the credibility of a key witness into question. So what happened was the witness was Detective Lillenfeld, who was the lead investigator on Michael's case. Apparently in 2018, he posed as a deputy and smuggled contraband into a county jail while he was working as a district attorney's investigator. And so even though this didn't have anything at all to do with Michael's case, his defense team clung to this one shred of hope that they had and said, right. you know, that the prosecution was really required to disclose this information by law to the defense so that they would be able to use it to attack Detective Lillenfeld's credibility in court, which makes sense because the jury needs to know, you know, if the guy that they're taking this information from, is he credible? So I can see how the defense would be like, whoa, like, wait a minute, like, if the jury would have known that, would they have weighed his testimony so right. heavily and and all that? So it all matters, you know, in the legal, in the court systems. So one of Michael's attorneys called it a due process violation. I couldn't find anything that talked about when he was supposed to be sentenced now, but once that's been done, he will be taken to Illinois to stand trial in Trisha's murder. Investigators actually believe that Michael could be responsible for up to 10 murders mm -hmm. and they are actively investigating any crimes that are similar to the ones that they already know for sure that he committed. Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. And I fully believe there's more. This just is somebody who was never going to stop until they got caught, you know. Yeah, yeah. The way his MO was, it definitely seems like there would be more. I would not be surprised to learn that he was responsible for, for more murders. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little before this that our whole connection to this story is that we both knew Ashton Kutcher had um, been dated or casually knew someone who had been murdered but neither of us knew that it was a serial killer and I don't think at the time of course of course at the time actually whenever this was like in the news and stuff they didn't know it was a serial killer they you know they had no idea so right. um yeah this story is really crazy one thing to his credit is as soon as he heard that you know Ashley was murdered he went to the police and was like let's let's talk let's go ahead and you know establish I had nothing to do with it and you know right how scary for him, though. Like, that is – oh, my gosh. That is just – I can't even imagine yeah. texting with someone and, and saying, I'm on my way and all of that. And, like, yeah. the police are going to find that. And then it's, like – and then find out that she was killed, like, really close to whenever you were sending these messages. Like, oh, my gosh. That is a very scary place to be. That and then also um, her landlord. I mean, just all of it. And you – and the other thing I was thinking – this took place in 2001, just her specifically took place in 2001, and he testified in 2019. And the reason I'm focusing on him is that's like the witness we actually know, and that's who we've seen in the media, not to make a big deal out of him, but that's like the connection I, I've had to this story. 
But 18 years, can you imagine going on the stand and you know, talking about something that happened 18 years ago and all these details you wouldn't think were important at the time, of course, seeing that stuff. But at the time, he didn't know that was important. So you could casually look in somebody's window, be like, oh, okay, it looks like wine. It looks like it was a little disheveled. Now you're having to recall details from 18 years ago that you did not think were important. I mean, of course, the next day he did, but I don't know. I was just thinking of how crazy that is that, you know, how much your memory fails you. Maybe I'm just right. getting old, but my no, memory's so That's a lot bad. of time. Yeah, that's a lot of time to pass. And I, I mean, I think there has to be even something to that. Like after a certain amount of time, your recall. And that's why police do try to interview immediately, you know, right, right. after something happens because that's when you're going to be – they're going to be able to get the most accurate information out of you. Of course, the more time that goes by, your brain just like starts – changing things on its own I feel like in stories and when you come up when you, even when you tell stories even when I tell stories you know after the fact a long time later I'm like wait a minute did it really happen the way I'm telling it or like am I like making up part of it or something you know last week I still haven't talked to my sister about this but whenever I talked about sleepwalking I I said you know she was out over the railing or whatever and I'm p- pretty sure that's what happened but I don't know it's been so long if my brain has change the story into that you know what I mean like I knew right. something big happened and I know I've said that before but was that the actual thing or did you, I know she got locked out so there's like it your brain just plays tricks on you and there's something with cults I won't say the exact cult but Leah Remini was part of it and they <laughs> I don't want to say their <laughs> name and um and they do something in uh, – I can't remember the big thing that they have when they're doing auditing, which is when they're having you remember these specific things, like this very painful thing in your life. So say that's a painful thing. Take him out of it, put somebody else there, that they saw this. And you think about it over and over and over again until there's no emotion tied to it. It manipulates your memory. So the more you – like the thing I read about that was like the more you think back to that memory, the more it can change. And it alternates and I don't know, brains are really weird. So it's just, it's so great to interview people a long time ago. I don't know. I was just thinking about all these stories. If you're, you don't know, you know, you don't know how important something's going to be 18 years from now. It's just bananas to me. Don't ask me where I got off on that tangent. I think I started feeling really <laughs> old because I remember when this happened. And then whenever I realized it was 18 years, I was like, are you kidding me? But they, it was amazing that the police, <laughs> back to the whole story, were able to work together and really try to, you know, make something happen and, and get the right guy. And just, man, this is, thank goodness this guy was stopped because he was, he wasn't going to just ever stop doing this. The other thing that I was like so blown away by in this case was how long everything took. And I guess like we said, maybe DNA, like that's just how long things were taking at that time period. But I feel like now it just seems so crazy to be like, it's been this long and he finally, you know, he still is awaiting sentencing. And like these crimes happened a long time ago. Like we said, like we're talking over a decade ago. I just was surprised to 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 see these dates and then to be like, oh, he still hasn't even been sentenced. It's it's 2020 now. Like, that's just crazy to yeah. me. Yeah. Now, some of that does seem very excessive. Some of it I feel like is um, we're used to like – I'm not saying you, but I can say speak for myself. Like, the Law & Order stories or even watching Dateline where the whole story is already laid out for you. So it's like not that far. But, but it seems like it's – You'll hear some cases. There was somebody that was killed in Orlando last year. And a couple months ago, they went to trial. And I was like, well, that seems very quick, you know, because then you have these that are like seven, eight years that they're building their cases, I guess. But 
Yeah, it was crazy. The 11 years one blew my mind. Just, I don't know. I mean, not 11, 18 years. It's just a a lot of time and how much could have gone wrong in that time and how much he did in that time. Okay, so we are going to turn the page and move on to our last thing before we go for the week. And this is going to be hopefully a fun one, I think. It's (laughs) It's in the vein of Christmas Christmas cheer holidays and all that yeah 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 so instead of talking about the things we love so much and the things we love getting for gifts whatever we're not going to do that we're going to talk about like some really terrible gift ideas that we found on the internet so if you are looking for I don't know what Melissa's are going to be like but if you are looking for (laughs) gag like if you're looking for absolutely awful gag gift ideas my ideas are th- this is where you want to be right now. So there are some terrible things that you can buy as a gift to someone. Terrible and also hilarious. Yeah. They're yeah. Like, uh, we did – my family does like white elephant gifts where it's like a really bad gift. So that's always kind of – it's more like a fun game. You know oh, you're not going to walk out of there with anything. Oh, is that a white elephant gift is? Yeah. I mean, well, okay. I've heard of it called Yankee Swap. They call it that on The Office. We called it white elephant. I've also heard it – no – uh and Dirty Santa. So we do it as White Elephant. Don't know what that means exactly. We did like you pick a number, you get a gift, but it's not a good gift. So these would be perfect for that. So if you're doing White Elephant, anything like that, have we got ideas for you. Or if you don't like somebody and you can't tell them to their face, but you have to buy them a gift, we got you covered. So Mandy, All right. <laughs> what's your first one? Okay. So my very, very first thing is... Um, you can go to this website, anonymouspotato.com, and you can send somebody a potato, like a baked potato, a russet potato, with their face on it, I guess. I don't know what they do. <laughs> I don't know what the process is, but they somehow get your face on a potato, and then for $15.99, they will ship it to this person for you. It's very cheap. I mean, it costs $15.99, and if you stay on their page long enough, it'll pop up with a coupon for um, 10% off. So if you want 10% off of potato that you can anonymously send to someone that has a face on it, you can go to anonymouspotato.com and get that. I, I love that because it's like, what do you get for somebody who has everything and apparently you have a lot of money and don't need to do anything with it? Just get them a potato with their face on it. That's perfect. I would like french fries with my face on it. Right. It'd be very, very thin. I would love I it. Know. It would be great. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I wonder. Like, can you eat this potato? Like, whatever they do to it, does it ruin it? Obviously, you don't keep it. It's a potato. It's going to rot. So, like, I know. I just don't understand. But it would be funny to send that to somebody. Like, I have a few people that I think, I honestly, I would send you that. And just because. That's I'd just, love it. That's just the kind of random things that we give each other. (laughs) It would make sense. Is this your way of telling me that that's coming to me? No, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't put it in this episode because I could have (laughs) totally done that. I would love it. Okay. Oh, there's my 10% off. Thank you. I just saw a pop up. (laughs) It's like, don't you dare get off of here. Okay, Mandy, my first one. For the gift lover, and I mean, not the gift lover, I guess the gift lover, but for the animal lover in your life, but like maybe you don't love them that much, there is a pooping dogs calendar. Oh, no. 2021. Why? Yeah. 
<laughs> and we'll have links to these in the show notes. Uh, this is not an ad, I promise you. But if you wanted to send these, these are pretty cool. Um, yeah, so you can look every month. You can just see a dog. Pooping. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at this. I pulled it up. We um, copy and pasted our links so that we could each look at these things because, of course, we didn't know. As they I didn't come know up, what you're yeah. Go <laughs> yeah. Um, but this just reminded me. So uh, because you have a puppy too, so you'll enjoy this story. So I'm always trying to get a cute picture of our new puppy, but she is very fast and she moves around a lot. And so I will sometimes have her out in the yard and I'll have like a tree and I'm trying to like hold a treat in one hand and my phone in the other and get her to also look at the camera and, you know, doing all the stuff that you do, you know, trying to get a dog to like take a picture. And, um, I feel like every time I start to do it, like she decides she's going to go to the bathroom right at that moment. And then I don't catch it right away. And I'm like, oh, she's sitting still. And then I take the picture and I'm like, oh, wait, I just took a picture of my dog like going to the bathroom. So I definitely don't want that. But I can see how this calendar got made. I mean, Mandy, missed opportunity. <laughs> missed <I know>. opportunity. <laughs> okay. All right. So my second thing is I honestly just cannot even believe believe my eyes when I came across this. So there is a thing. (laughs) There's a thing on Etsy and it is called Brief Jerky Beef Jerky Underwear. And it is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) So for $225, you can buy a pair of jewel encrusted underwear that's made out of actual beef jerky. Oh my gosh. The most upsetting part is the modeling that's been done here. This is, and the guy has like, why is he holding a tennis racket for no reason? (laughs) Oh my gosh. This wins. This is horrific. (laughs) There is an Etsy link. We will definitely put it in the show notes for the brief jerky, beef jerky underwear, $225. If you have that kind of money laying around and you want to send somebody a gift that will surely make them laugh, this is definitely the thing for you. If you I... want a dog to attack somebody's crotch, <laughs> this is this is how you do it. <laughs> All right, Melissa, what do you have next? <laughs> oh my gosh, I cannot beat that and nor do I want to because that is horrific. Okay, so my next one, apparently this is a thing and I'm not happy about it. Oh my gosh, I love this already. (laughs) This is horrific. This is popping pimples. So it's this toy thing that you like fill with, oh, it's orange, but you fill it with like yellow stuff and you pop it like it's a zit. So it's literally, oh gosh, I just looked at one of the pictures. It's, (laughs) it's like, oh gosh, Mandy, it's called pimple pus. You put the pimple pus in there. Why is your mouth watering? It should be doing the opposite. Stop, stop, stop. I think it's the beef jerky. It's confused me. So <laughs> use the dropper and withdraw. Oh, put the pimple pus. Oh, I can't say it anymore. The worst part is it says play and have fun. And why is the pimple pus like smoking? There's a picture of it smoking in this water thing. Kids are playing with it. I don't understand what's going on. I love it. I love it. I love it. I hate it so much. But yeah, if if you like Dr. Pimple Popper, which is, I do, I I'm one <gasps> of those people. <laughs> do you watch it? Because what's wrong with you? That is the okay. Most some of them show. I can't. I can only do certain certain things. But like I am into that. I don't know. I just am into that kind of thing. Just now, everyone knows. That... Now everyone knows. <laughs> Yeah, that is that's something you keep close to the chest. That is very upsetting. But I get what people say that it's like a really like a satisfying thing, but just the 
pimple pus <laughs> part of it is so upsetting. I don't know why you'd want to take that on the road. I don't understand it. Oh my gosh. Okay, Mandy, what's your next one? Okay. All right. So my last thing, it's made by Urban Outfitters, which makes you think like, oh, this is probably going to be something Great. like amazing. Very cool. I want it. <laughs> right. So it's actually just a game that you can play while you're sitting on the toilet, but not like a handheld game, not like a game on a tablet. This is like a mini golf course <laughs> like that you just put down in between your legs and your feet while you're sitting on the toilet and you hit a golf ball around while you're going to the bathroom, I guess. And this is a gift. I actually saw – this was not even on a worst gift um, suggestion. This was actually – you know, no irony detected. Like somebody suggested this as a gift idea for people in your life. And I don't know. I just can think of a lot of things going wrong while you're playing mini golf while you're on the toilet. What is going on in your colon that this seems like (laughs) a thing you want to be doing? I feel like if you have time to play a game, you probably should be concentrating on what's going on downstairs because (laughs) I feel like you're going to need all the concentration. Yeah, right. And then I thought, well, maybe like for kids, like I thought, well, you know, if kids who are like potty training and they don't want to stay on the toilet very long, maybe that would be good. But then I was like, no, that is a nightmare. Giving a kid a game to play when you just want them to go poop. Like, I I just think that's a terrible idea. And then they're trying to get up and like if they hit the ball too far and then they're like, eh, no, no matter how you slice it, it's a terrible idea. I don't think we need to have interactive. We don't need to play sports while we're, you know, in the bathroom, basically. Use your phone like a human <laughs> or read the back of a shampoo bottle like I used to. Right. So, um, but Mandy, it's worse because I just clicked a, a little thing on there. There's a basketball version of this too. I Do you saw see that? Another, I didn't see the other versions on Urban Outfitters, but I saw another version on a, another website where it looked like it was like a fishing. Like it was I like saw a, that where one. You catch the fish. So anyway, there are a lot of toilet activities out there um, done by Urban <laughs> Please Outfitters. Please don't call them that. Please <laughs> do not call them that ever again. <laughs> okay, okay, Mandy, that is ruined my night. And um, <laughs> the next one, my last one is... Well, this is not nearly as bad as your beef jerky, but it is upsetting. And people have suggested this one to me several times. It's socks that look like steaks. Why would I want to put my favorite thing on my least favorite thing? (laughs) You're just ruining a thing I love with a thing I hate. I hate it. so, But I also find it's a confusing feeling. It's very conflicting for me because I don't want to see your feet. But I don't want to lust after your feet and imagine putting a one sauce on them either. So <laughs> you're leaving me with not a lot of options here. Oh, throw me your potato head and I'll have a really good time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. So these are better than the things I almost put on my list. It was a sock thing. And then um, it didn't. These are awful, by the way. They literally terrible. Look, they look like meat feet. <laughs> like, they do. Wear that with your so beef jerky terrible. undies. Oh, man. That's... <laughs> I know. I just hate it. So I found these other sock things I was going to put on my list, but then I was like, no, these aren't, this isn't terrible. Melissa would love this, but they're like, they're socks that are like battery operated warm, you know, warming socks, but they have battery packs. (laughs) Like, I guess you just, I guess you just have the battery packs hanging off your ankles. I don't really know how, I didn't look too far into it. And I thought it was like a terrible, it's like something I feel like somebody would give you and then you would never use them. Like you'd be like, oh, cool idea. And then it would just get stuck in a drawer and it would be there for you the next like You would never use years. them. I know. Yeah. 
I would live in them. Oh my gosh, that is such a great idea. Yeah. Feet warmer socks. Although I would start a fire in them or yeah, and then my feet would Well, they're battery operated. I you would have to try I don't trust these to things. Start a fire in them. I don't know how things work. Mandy, I think batteries can start start fires. I don't know that to be true, but I don't want to try it. Man, if this almost restored my hope in humanity to know that there's such gifts like that out there after there seeing the beef jerky underoos. That is upsetting so much. And the fact that they added jewelry to it, like that made it better. I don't understand it. So please look at that but, link if nothing but else. why $225 for those underwear? I can't take that long to like craft beef jerky underwear. So like. I don't know. They even had like sexy sides on it. Like I don't know what that was on the sides, but it wasn't beef jerky. So they even cut out the middleman there and took a couple inches off. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this was so good. I'm so glad we did this. So Mandy, I have an idea for next week. What if we ask listeners to send in their craziest weird gifts to us and we can pick a few for next week to have on? Would that be fun? I love that. And we all love a good, funny, true story about something that has happened to a real person. So yeah, absolutely. Send us that if you have links, pictures, anything like that, especially if you're cool with us sharing it. Send it to us. Send it to lastthingbeforewego at gmail.com. And you can put in the subject like, oh, I should come up with something witty. I'm not going to be able to. Just um, terrible holiday gift or something. Ah, just be creative. We'll find it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> the more creative, the better. And then we'll pick some to read next week. And we'll put those in the show notes. That will be something fun to end the year with. Because next week's our last show for the 2020 year. Aren't we just ready to get to 2021? I feel like we all are. No, I feel like, okay, so I've seen a few listeners recently that have uh, commented that they're listening, you know, they started listening from the beginning and now they're in 2019 and they're like, oh my gosh, it's almost 2020 and Mandy and Melissa don't know yet that 2020 is going to be crazy. And so they're like, I just find I want to like fast forward and tell them like, no, don't say have a good 2020. (laughs) So so you know what? This year I'm just going to say, I hope you have a terrible 2021 and we're going to hope that it turns out the opposite because I feel like we definitely, um, we messed that up last year. You think we contributed to this? Yeah. <laughs> Possibly. I'm not blaming me any more than I blame you for beef jerky underwear. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Oh, and then check out if you haven't already, if you're not on Patreon, if you would like to, patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. We're going to be doing a uh, live something or another that's still being worked out, TBA, TBD, over there. So, if you want to. Uh, join us for that that will be later in December again don't have a date don't have a time don't really have a whole lot going on with that just at the moment but we will and you can find that information on patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast plus we have bonus content from three years we've got three years worth of stuff on there if you want to check that out all right sounds awesome I am looking forward to our little live thing we don't know what it is yeah we'll figure it out we we'll do. figure it out the we day do. before. We, we do it. know. We're just trying yeah. not to give all of our secrets away. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is very yeah. – This is. it's like vague posting, but on a podcast, yeah. whatever that is. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we will see you back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.